0: Love, talk, radio. This program has been made possible by Weatherby Asset Management. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests. Weatherby Asset Management is dedicated to providing exceptional wealth management services by forming partnerships built on trust, understanding, and thoughtful advice. For more than 20 years, they've been offering objective perspective, personalized planning, and sophisticated investment management to individual investors and families, as well as pension plans, foundations, and endowments. Contact them at www.weatherby.com. Weatherby Asset Management, located in San Francisco and New York City. Finally, a global program specifically for wealthy philanthropic women who are humble, gracious leaders. Sylvia Global's host, Gil Sylvia, invites you to join her in these conversations with first ladies of nations, households, business, and communities. Trustworthy live conversations with women from around the globe provides a place for your voice to connect with women of integrity, passion, and purpose. Now, here's your host. Gail Sylvia. Good morning. Thank
1: you so much for joining us today. I'm very, very excited. I have a very special friend. Her name is Ann Lovell. Ann is the founder and executive director of the Valley Foundation, which was launched as a new funding branch focused on women and girls. She is um, also a, a one of the leaders, I know you have a new director, Anne, of the David and Laura Lovell Foundation and also the treasurer and director of the Brave Well co- um, Collaborative. Anne, thank you so much for being here today. Well, thank you for inviting me. You know, in addition to those titles in the area of ph- your philanthropy, you're also a CPA and the mother of several children. How many children do you have, Ann? Anne? I have six. I was go- I was going to say six, but I thought let me just um, go with the safe the safe question and let her answer it. Also joining us today is my co-host Emily Bouchard. Emily is the host along with her co- um, co-host Dr. Jamie Traeger Muni of the Wealth Psychology Hour on Sylvia Global. You can hear them live every Tuesday morning Pacific Standard Time at eight o'clock. Oh, Anne. Emily, welcome! Thank you so much for being here again. Thank you,
2: it's a pleasure, and it's a delight to get to have this conversation with you and Gail Sylvia. Oh,
1: thank you! I'm looking forward to it. And talk to us about um, where you learned your philosophies and lessons on on giving and caring about humanity.
3: You know, it's an interesting question, and I'm often asked that. I would have to say it was basically in the air I breathed growing up. It was part of the community, part of the family. If somebody in the neighborhood needed something, you you, know, you trotted over with muffins or you babysat for people when they needed babysitters. When you were a little older, I was a candy striper at a hospital. I think it was just part of of life for me. I don't know that there was ever an aha moment. It just was that whenever you had time, you
1: just helped. Even if you didn't have time. <laughs> Has that changed in any way through the years? Um I I think with the
3: advent of having uh more money and wanting to provide, wanting to share that and provide it responsibly within the communities that I live, I think it became more um it became like grown-up philanthropy. So instead of just, you know, helping out the, the the neighbor which you still do or I still do, it became the the thinking about how to make really sustainable big change and and how to participate in that and how that would look and how to partner with the agencies that that are actually doing such great work on the ground and how to do that well
1: you know at what what age Anne, did you transition from or when when at what age did you begin to use the the term or the title I am a philanthropist
3: oh it took me a while to get comfortable with that term itself because it takes you a while to be comfortable with being seen as someone that's wealthy i think that there's the two come together to me philanthropy is about it's about everything. It, it's about wealth. It's about work, which I think time is the most important element in giving. It, it's about the 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 wisdom that you bring to the situation, and it's about wit because if you can't laugh, this is really hard work in many many ways. And you become so caught up in in trying to make a difference that sometimes you know you lose yourself in it. And I think that you have experienced that, and I think that many of us that are working so hard to make change really have.
1: You know, how I, do you I, find yourself again?
3: Well, that's the that's the big question, isn't it? It's how do you take those quiet moments to regenerate or recalibrate yourself to be able to go back out. And I work, too, so it becomes very, very busy. But, you know, I think of that E.B. White quote um, What was it? Uh, If the world were merely seductive, that would be easy. If the world were merely challenging, that would be no problem. But I wake up each and every morning torn between a desire to save the world and a desire to savor the world. It makes it hard to plan the day. So, you know, it's that how do you remember to savor the world when you spend so much time
1: and energy trying to make such a big
3: difference. Where,
1: where When have those moments been, um, where are the most memorable moments of you nourishing and replenishing your soul when you spend so much time giving? Um, I'm, I'm not really good at that yet. I'm still
3: learning. Um, it's usually when I take time and move away from everything and just spend time with family and friends
1: mm-hmm. and yeah, just
3: relax. It's when I write poetry You've oh, seen some yeah, you of write that. beautiful when
1: poetry. I, yeah. When I take
3: the time to let myself write and and to or or hike and be out in the middle of nowhere um because it takes time to shut your mind down from all of the constant, you know, babble your brain does, no matter how important to to give yourself
1: time to breathe. What parts of your life are are you hoping your daughters and sons will model from you and learning um, these lessons? Well, I hope that they all have a strong work ethic, but that
3: they take time to enjoy each other and mm. take time to to enjoy their children and and to to live
1: in the moment. Mm. You know one so, of the things that um that i that you and I just you know share just so deeply is where we believe in embracing the the whole whole person you know the whole and you know the spiritual part of our lives as well. We're not disconnected from the importance of that life, and then connecting our children with our work and the importance of putting energy into not only saving and caring for the world, but making sure that we're there for our children and our parents and our family and those that are near and dear to us, you know, that becomes um, draining too, you know, <laughs> you know it, it it really requires. I think philanthropists in general are tend to be, especially women who are focused on women and girls, It's a way that we are, it's a part of who we are in our and how much we give. It's a reflection of all the levels of our giving that I can't help but wonder how much importance we really place on replenishing our own souls, you know, our own relationships and the things that we need in order to stay strong and. To have a full cup to be able to give from you know we'll give from our emptiness, you know like right down you know, to the last drop you know? uh, how do you, you know how do you do that on a day to day basis, replenish your soul and and your cup? How do I do that mm-hmm. on a day to day basis um, it's so challenging
3: well and and i I think that that I'm a, in, incredibly lucky that I don't have a depressed cell in my body. Hmm. So I wake up every day happy. And for a long time I thought everyone did. Um but I wake up and you know so if I look outside and I see clouds I go, Wow, look at the clouds. And and I think that I get up and see in Tucson sunshine almost every day and look up at the mountains and, you know, look out at some of my fun sculptures in the yard and Pet my dog oh, and, and my great. cat. That's it. Yeah. You know, it it, it makes me happy.
1: Yeah, that spirit of gratitude. You know. Well, I'm hmm?
3: grateful for every breath that I take. So, you know, somebody, something higher than me grants me this privilege of living on this earth and the ability to do to do so much, and I'm forever grateful for it.
1: You know, our paths came so close before we eventually were connected. I mean, right down to, you know, two times a week we were seeing each other in the same Pilates studio, saying hello to one another, and then later on, you know, being introduced and going, I know you, <laughs> you, know, from, you know, I see you, and, you know, hi, we clean up pretty good. <laughs> you know? And I think that the way that... um our lives when we're um enjoying life um brings us so close to others who are of like mind and spirit. Uh, and that's what, what, and then you introduced me to the of women moving millions and that wonderful community of like minded who are compassionate and caring and big and bold in not only their dreams but in their doing, you know and in their giving. Um, so much of our wealth um, comes from basically three categories. You know, we either inherit it, we earn it, or we marry it. And you earned it in addition to inheriting. You know, can you talk to us about that? Well, uh, yes. Um, mm-hmm. You know,
3: it's it's, and I think you're right. There's there's some categories involved, and with it comes different feelings about the monies that we have. When I first inherited money, I was already um, about 40 years old. I think I was 39, almost 40, and so I already had a business. Uh, I was successful in the work that I did, and I, you know, still had children living at home, and and I was I was, you know, very comfortable in that. And to inherit money upon the death of a family member is never comfy. I mean, it's you miss your family member. My father passed away and left some monies. And and it was, you know, at first you think, you know, you just sort of set it aside, I think, because you're grieving the death of someone you love so much. But I started thinking about what you would do with that, and I was quite capable of, of earning a good living, so I took half of it and started a foundation. Um, and at that time it was to grant college scholarships, to students not based on grades, but based on um, community work and and their their participation in school or employment oper- you know how much did they have to work but so it it was a it was a way to honor my father and also give give to my community It's interesting to me to win the lottery you know if I were told I just won a million dollars. I would think, okay, oh, this is really great, but I have responsibilities. So to me, money means it means opportunities and responsibilities. I feel a strong commitment that when we reach a point where we have enough to feed our families, um, that we really need to look, to, even when we're struggling, you still need to look at your community, the people around you. And when you've been very successful, there's that, that sharing with the community in which you live. So I think that I've always felt that. So, And I was old enough when I inherited wealth that I understood that. And I knew who I was and what I was capable of doing. And that, I think, helped me from some of the, I would call it almost the prejudice against wealth, because people, once they see you as wealthy, I think there's some sort of stigma related to it that obviously you either cheated someone or you were given this money and you never had to do anything to earn it or to – you weren't like everyone else. You didn't have to work. You didn't have to do. I'm to the point, like I told you earlier, that I was actually asked at a meeting when someone was annoyed with me they just tried to dismiss me by saying, well, you just bought your CPA license, didn't you? In your response – Oh, my response was to say, really? (laughs) Really? (laughs) Really? Who knew? I could have done that. I could have avoided all that work. But I tend to make things funny because it's easier, and people then have to laugh a little bit at themselves because we all take ourselves a little too serious from time to time. So when I look at, at wealth, I think that, you know, if you didn't know anything about it and suddenly you inherit a great wealth at a young age, I I actually don't like that and I and I tell people constantly maybe 35 40 is a better distribution time to allow a young person to discover more about who they are and I I really believe we have to be hungry to really take the risks to discover what we can do. And in some of those cases money can be a detriment because you know you're not hungry. Emily
2: are you there? Yes, I'm chomping at the bit to jump in. You two jump are so in. fabulous. This is great. Oh, my gosh. I love what you just said right now. Um, and it's so interesting because maybe you can speak to this young because what happens that we see a lot is um, parents have that belief that you said, like they need to be hungry, they need to find out who they are, and yet children that are born to um, into situations where there is a, a lifestyle they're accustomed to and um, they have access to privileges growing up. Um, How do you see yourself, and with six kids, I'm excited to hear what you're going to say, um, in terms of instilling those values of the work ethic and the um, the, uh, striving for what matters to you and what you care about in ways that have the children really engaging with that with themselves? Um, Because the other side of it is a lot of the children see their parents doing what you do, which is being so passionate and engaged and involved in their work and in their giving back, that oftentimes children can um, feel some mixed feelings about the wealth and the money, and gosh, it seems like that's more important than I am, and more of my parents' time is going towards building or giving it away than, than being with me. And so then there can be a real inner conflict around it, and then they it can come across as well, I guess I need to love money, or I need to have more money so that I can feel loved. So it gets very confusing. I'm wondering what you see in terms of how you relate with your kids to bring forth your values.
3: Well, I think we'd start with the fact that they had seen me work to earn a living to support them for a number of years. So we didn't, um, we had a lifestyle that was comfortable, but it grew with time. So we were able to take little vacations and then bigger vacations, and and then, but they had seen me as someone that had to work for a living. So if I were to say the work ethic part, I don't think any of my children want to work as hard as I did, because um, I did have to work, and then I would, I always found ways to work in my field. I was a tax accountant, um, CPA, to where. I could take the afternoon piece off and go to the games and pick the kids up and do all of that, but that and the homework hours, and then work through the night often, you know, and get up and get the kids to school and then go to the office for that time, and then work. A, I always worked weekends over tax season, and they all worked for me for a number of years, or worked for people that worked with me so that they they grew up knowing that that's what you had to do in order to take these vacations or to do these different things or to have some of the privileges um as we grew as they grew up you know we were able to do more i think i always told them things do you remember the bill cosby show where his son on the bill cosby show says but dad we're rich and bill cosby and his tv wife say yes we're rich you're poor <laughs>
0: And I remember
3: telling my kids, you know, I may have earned a lot of money, but this is my money. And you know, when you work with your teenagers and they want to have privileges in your house that aren't, you know, I can bring my friends home at such and such a time. No, 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 no. Mm-mm. This is my house. If you pay your portion that your room is, you know, that's how many square feet compared to the rest of the house, and here's the bills, if you pay me that, then you're a leasee, I'm the leaseor, And you have to sign a contract, and you're still not bringing anybody in late at night. Or, no, you can't have a girl in your room. Or, you know, this isn't your house. That's not your furniture. I think that that was part of their growing up, that if you went out and earned the money and bought it, then it was yours. But if you just thought you had it given to you, it was not. I think the hardest part for my kids was when I became so involved in philanthropy. They were worried that I was going to not have enough because I would give everything away. And yeah, I'm sure that they've had funny feelings now and then because I don't give... I'm really good about paying for education. So if my kids are in school, they get you know their education up through, I don't pay for graduate school at this point. I have, Remember, I have six kids. It's easier to make rules when you have lots of them because if you buy the car for the first child and the rule is that he gets the car to go to college and then he quits school, then he's supposed to pay you back. And, of course, he can't pay you back because he doesn't have any money. And you have five kids waiting for a car and you say, Oh, gosh, I made a mistake. I'm not going to do this anymore. I learned from my mistakes, and you guys aren't going to get the car when you go to college. Um, It's an interesting dilemma, but I think when you have six kids, it's a lot easier to make rules because you just can't afford to do this for six different kids who will all make different mistakes. I think greater for me was, and I did talk to all of my children. The youngest is about to turn 27. The oldest is 40. I did talk to them when I made the commitment to Women Moving Millions. And at that point it was a combination, of, so it's a 1 million dollar commitment and it was a combination of lifetime and legacy at that time. And I told them that, you know, to that they would get something when I if I got hit by a bus or when I passed away, but that this was my commitment and it came first and I didn't feel that leaving them I keep telling them I'm going to live long enough to spend out and that they really have to do this themselves.
1: So what's their response then?
3: Um they're grown up enough now and they've been um with me long enough including my stepchildren that they they I think they really get it now and they see more and they've come to foundation meetings and they they understand it. When they were younger I had a few times when kids would say, well, what about me? You know, if you give that money to them, why don't you give me something? And I would say, well, what are you going to do with it? If I give this money to this organization, they're going to feed or house or take care of, you know, 5,000 people. If I give this money to you, what are you going to do with it? I think that's the, the other piece now, now you know, we had some dilemmas because there's children that, that did receive some funds at different times through family and some that didn't. So we have a real mix. And how do you pull that together? Because I have children and stepchildren and and family yeah, that follows bloodline and family that doesn't. So That's such it,
2: an important – I'd yeah. love to jump in here. Because um, that's the specialty that I work with is with blended families and – Um, that whole phenomenon of um, really bringing forward this fair versus equal question that kids face in families. And, you know, even with children that are your birth children, there's differences in terms of needs based on what, you know, what they're born with, if there's a physical illness or, you know, mental challenge. But when you have a step-family situation and you have... Do you have the yours and mine, or do you have yours, mine, and ours? Do you, did you have all three, or do you just have... <laughs>
3: I ha- No, I have yours, I have mine, and his.
2: Okay. And then I
3: divorced, and they all stayed. And his were from two different mothers. So oh, they, there yeah, were lots you're, you're the... of different families involved in these six children that came together. They're very close now.
2: Oh, but, you got them all. That's great.
3: But there, you know, there's lots of pieces. You know, when I blended everybody together and they all were living in a house, my oldest um, is the only one that didn't live with us full time. Um, my oldest stepdaughter, but she was 18 at the time. But we had one really big rule that I think saved all of them, and it was that you could never say anything negative about anybody's parents. Now, sometimes it was pretty funny because a child would be, com- you know, complaining about their biological parent and the other kids would say, you can't say that, that's my parent.
2: That's great. <laughs> so right. it, it yeah. did
3: help a lot because it eliminated, it, it forced everyone to think about how they would feel if somebody said something bad about their own parent. You know, or so that was off limits. You couldn't say anything now, bad you, about parents. Did you parents.
2: Too- did you two hold that as well, where you didn't say anything? Not negative a word. About that? That's Not fantastic. one
3: word. Um, the worst my children have ever heard me say about their parents was they were in, by then an adult, and it was um, when I discovered how how rough my oldest children's life was because of their parent and what had been done to them. And my comment was, oh, my goodness, I hope you don't want me to be around that person for a while because it's going to take me some time to recover. And I won't be kind. I'll want to rip them apart. <laughs> so they know yeah, your how mama I feel. Yeah,
2: your mama yeah, bear came out I, big time, sure. Yeah,
3: and it doesn't matter when you find out things like that. But most of the time you just you tell the kids over and over again they're doing the best they can, the parent. That's just who they are, and don't expect more. Um, It's hard to say. I mean, it's hard to remind your child all the time that they have a parent with a birthday coming up, even though that person hasn't perhaps spoken to them for a long time and hasn't been kind. It's about your end doing what's right. It's not about how it's going to be received. And once they're adults, they have to find that themselves. The best counseling I ever received was to ensure that I kept saying, I can't help you with a relationship with your father. If I'm involved, it will only get worse. You're going to have to build your own relationship. And you'll have all of my support, and I will listen to you, and I believe you'll make the right decisions. And you can ask me my opinion, but it's still your decision. And I will support that decision. And it gets really sticky when there's this many. It's a lot of emotion for any blended family.
2: Yep, that's you putting know. it mildly. But what a brilliant way to launch them because, I mean, I'm sure listeners, anybody who's listening, whether they're in a blended family or not, can see the wisdom within this in terms of um, the platform that you gave them in all of their relating with people. Like okay, I can be totally offended by what this person just did, even if it's at work or, you know, on the, the freeway, or I can just, oh, that person is doing the best that they can. I shouldn't expect more. And, you know, what can I do to be a piece of this situation or how can I move with them with that's who they are? And that's an extraordinary thing to give to children no matter what age and, you know, whether they're in blended families or not. That's really wise.
1: And you have a
2: question
1: from a listener that's been emailed in, and okay. it's coming from Portland, Oregon. Her name is Barb. She wants to know what advice you would give her for including, being able to include her children in her philanthropic decision processes. Well, um,
3: one of the best things I ever found for my kids it's how do you – for children, and especially, you know, even up to high school, they need to be involved in some way. You need to see the start, the middle, and the end. And one of the things that helped my kids a lot, there was a volunteer center program here in town that was happened on um, you know Christmas time. But it was where you raised money for backpacks. You could go to this huge warehouse and help put together the backpacks and then those backpacks were delivered to some of the, the most needy schools in the in the in, in the southern Arizona area on a specific day they called it a visit from Saint Nicholas. So my kids could they did this when they were about fourteen through seventeen. They could raise money and then I would match if they so if they raised a hundred dollars that would be four backpacks. I would match it. So then they could They knew that they were bringing in that money. And then we would go to the warehouse, and then they would see what goes in the backpacks, which is, you know, they know of their backpacks, and these backpacks were clear, so they had to find out. We did this with a group in Houston where there was a lot of problems, so they had to have clear backpacks to go to school. Another lesson. And then there would be like dental floss and toothbrushes and toothpaste, and they thought, you know, why would you put that in a backpack? And they were told that most of the kids didn't have that at home. They didn't have a toothbrush. So this would be their first toothbrush. These were given to first or second graders. Then they could look at, you know, there were a couple toys, there were learning things, there were books, and they, you know, coordinated so all the first graders at a particular school got the same book. And they were very impressed, but they worked all night packing backpacks and then they got to go to the school one of the schools the day those backpacks were delivered and be in a classroom and see you know responses and and how kids responded to the backpacks and answer questions and then find out at the one school they went to that the backpacks weren't allowed to go home until this was the beginning of december until the holiday started and they were livid you know my goodness you know, let's go talk to the principal. Why can't they take their backpacks home? And to learn that those backpacks being in the school might be the only way that that kid came to school until break because their parents were not as, they hadn't finished school and they weren't as as supportive of an education. So it's up to the kids to talk their parents into bringing them to school. So think of the lessons learned. You realize the power you have to raise money, the power you have to go and do it, and then you see the results all within about six weeks, which is about all. It's kind of like going to a soup kitchen for a shortened form, but you don't see the raising of the, or the creation of the food, but you see the result. What I liked about some of the programs where you actually raised the money, you did the work, and then you saw the result is that for a kid, it 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 brings it home. So then when you talk about making a grant to, you know, a, a, a program that does A, B, and C, the kids have a better understanding. There's money. That money had to be raised. It can now go to this organization, and then it will help those people. Take kids on site visits if your organization does site visits. And let them prepare. Give them the documents you would give to anyone else ahead of time. Let them read the documents. Let them understand and ask questions. Always invite the questions. And then let them go and see. Because other than that, it doesn't it doesn't seem real. And it's harder to understand. Does that help? Yeah, there's
1: disconnect. Yeah, there's disconnect. You have another question from a caller. Her name is Lynn. Um, actually, and we were trying to get her on air, but she has emailed her, her question over from Wilmington, Delaware. She says, "Ann, I'm familiar with um, your work with the BraveWell collaboration. Could you speak about that to the um, listeners?"
3: Well, the BraveWell Collaborative is a is a group of philanthropists that all singly before they formed this organization before we formed it funded integrative medicine and trying to change, you know, the face of medicine. I just call it good medicine or sort of old medicine to be more um, patient-centered and and mind-body spirit within the community you live and using the modalities that are sensible from from allopathic and from Eastern medicine and other sources. And we were frustrated that we couldn't make big change in our little – areas in the world or the North America. And we got together and actually formed um, a, a 501c3, a, a nonprofit foundation, to strategically leverage the whole field. And in doing so, we were able to do so much more. Um, and this was 12 years ago in 2001. And, you know, now you hear, you know, integrative medicine all the time. We're looking at all the different pieces, and that's not all our organization. Because what we really did, and most people have never heard of the organization, we leveraged the people that were making a difference doing this work in the way that they requested, in the ways that they thought they could use this help, up to and including a summit at the Institute of Medicine in Washington, D.C., on integrative medicine and the health of the public. So that organization is like philanthropy on steroids. It's, it's how you could actually come together, put your own agendas aside, and leverage an entire field without, you know, thinking of your own part. Just keep thinking of the strategies that work with the people actually really doing the most and how you would leverage that as a philanthropist with your time with your wisdom with your connections with with your funds and it's making a big difference um that organization is is actually sunsetting right now over the next couple of years um because it's it's done what it set out to do it's put integrative medicine you know at the forefront in the national conversation it's women moving millions is similar in many ways it's a coming together um it it's more of women moving millions has a lot more of a sharing aspect but it's about leveraging the resources that go to women and girls it's not about my program or somebody else's program or anyone else's program. it's about the entire world how do you leverage the resources and i think that's a stage we get to after we've done all of the other philanthropy you know you you sort of if you want to start changing the world you know outside of your home area, which is also you know so important, most of us
1: do both, and do you have a an end date for most of your projects and your giving, do you expect there to be a, a point where you you can see your effectiveness and know that the job is well done? It's time to move on.
3: Are you talking about Bravewell or something else? In
1: general, just in general. In general, well, in general, I think there's many types
3: of giving. Some some things need to may need to be given to year after year after year. It's the only way that those services will be able to be provided within a community. I say that often about mental health um, education programs. Um, it's not like tomorrow morning we won't have anyone that's mentally ill, and it's the hardest money to raise because there really isn't a poster child. You know, it, it's it's a it's kind of scary. People are afraid of mental illness there, and one out of four people are affected. So, an educational program that that provides that that ability to know what to do with a family member or or a friend or or even your own journey is really important but it's not the kind of funding that you know other entities or government or anyone does so you know there may be needs in your community or or in the world that you are very passionate about that may never end so there's a lot of ways to look at philanthropy You know, do you grant to the same organization for how many years? It's always the question, what is the impact? Not all organizations, not all work will become self-sustainable.
2: And this is so powerful, and I love that you just said that because the uh – The listeners, I know, and they're just as concerned and passionate about all sorts of things, and there is such an overwhelm in terms of what can I do? What can I as one little person do? And, you know, just listening to you, it's like, my gosh, I I can't even keep track of all of the different ways in which you are doing whatever you can to make an impact in so many different domains of how to make this world a better place for so many people. And I was wondering if you would speak a little bit to what you're doing right now. Uh, Today's a pretty significant day, and many people may not be aware of what's happening. And um, I think what you're up to in Arizona, is, it's, it's worth speaking about. And um, would you be willing to share a little bit about what you're up to? Oh, sure,
3: sure, because it's been a couple hours. Um, <laughs> um, when I was at uh, the TED Women Conference, the big TED Talk conference on December 1st in D.C., Eve Ensler, who most of you may know, um, she wrote the Vagina Monologues, along with many other things and shows. She's also the founder of V Day, as as in, like say Valentine's Day, which was created to bring an end to the violence against women and girls in the world. Teensy Tinyse Mission. And over this over these last years, today is their 15th anniversary in operation. And, in, and for probably the past uh, at least seven or eight years, all of the data and the research has come back to say that one out of three women, you think about that, one out of three women in this world will be raped or beaten in their lifetime. For someone like me that wants women at every table helping to make all decisions, how can you do that if women aren't safe? I mean, we can all think of Maslow's Pyramid. Safety is right down there you know, in the bottom ranks. So what they did that was so brilliant is launched a campaign, and if there's 7 billion people in the world, one out of three women is about one billion women. So the campaign is called One Billion Rising, and it's one billion women and everyone that loves them rising up and going out and dancing to bring an end to the culture of violence against women and girls in the world. It's in his, last time I looked, it was 200 countries and territories around the world. They've created a website where it is so, anyone could do a rising. You go in and register it, and it could be your 20 people in your dance class. It could be stepping up and going outside with your friends. And you can register these risings all over. And when I heard about this, I thought, how perfect for Tucson, you know, to be able First off, to be able to participate and actually make a difference by showing up in such a big problem. You know, it's that how do we make a difference, something that big. And this gives everyone the opportunity. Second, it's dancing. Who doesn't like to go out and dance? There's a song that's written. The choreography was done by Debbie Allen, who does you know, So You Think You Can Dance. I think she did flash Dance, very famous choreographer. And we, when I came back after the conference, I worked to get the University of Arizona Mall, which is the center area of, of the University of Arizona here in Tucson, and we were able to do that. And we have almost what would be a flash mob if you're actually coming and you didn't have to plan it. From four to five today, we have dancers that are going to lead us through the choreography. And we're going to be there for an hour dancing. It'll be recorded and up on YouTube for all of the different groups to see. The Greek Society on campus has supported it. The Women's Foundation here, the Valley Foundation, the Speech and Language Therapists, the the Women and Gender Program, and the Girl Scouts are working on it. It's how do we bring the community together at the university where we have so many young people and just go out and make a statement. Be there. So that's what we're doing tonight.
2: Now, my guess is, <laughs> you spoke a little bit about this off-air, is this wasn't one of those things that, hey, let's go do this at the university, and everybody jumped oh, no. up and said, oh, yeah, let's all just go do this. You had to deal with a lot of, I mean, I just think it's so important because we have these big ideas and visions, and then we have to deal with the little steps it takes to have them happen from December till now, how many steps do you think you've had to take towards having this happen today?
3: Like well nobody death. nobody at the university would do anything until after the winter break. So we actually weren't able to start until about the tenth or twelfth of January when the university was really back. So we you have to you have to file for um for your program to go on the mall. There's a there's a there's an application you have to fill out. It goes through seven or eight different departments. You have to know if you need police, you have to know if you you have to have liability insurance, a lot of it. So you have to buy a policy. If you want tables, we wanted like six tables and some chairs to be available for organizations that provide services to victims of violence. Just in case anyone that comes out I figure if one person picks up a brochure and uses it, we've 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 succeeded. But you have to you have to get all of that. They, they call them vendors. They have to be approved. You have to you know go through quite a lot. And we just found out today we don't have a banner permit. And you had to have that ahead of time. Someone gave us a banner because we're being videoed and it'll be on the news. And we may not be able to put our banner up because you had to have that 10 days in advance. <laughs> We may have people holding our banner up, and and seeing what we can do. It's it's not that it's that it's impossible. Always remember, you can get through this, but you have to know that there's lots of steps to doing something at a place that makes that big a difference. I mean, this is a university yeah. campus with over thirty thousand students. And
2: yeah, you know, I, I like the uh, the quote. Um, one of my favorite quotes is. When you have an idea, it can often feel impossible, and then it goes to being improbable to being inevitable. And it's all of those little steps and not getting daunted by them. And I think one of the biggest things I would love for listeners to get from this is get the data. Don't be afraid to ask, okay, what else do we need? Connect with other people that have done things like on the, in that same location or like do whatever you can to gather as much information and data so that you can take and know what steps you take. And, yeah, it's, like, it's amazing all of the things that are set up as almost orange cones in our way that we need to navigate to get to our destination, But we don't need to necessarily pull over and stop and give up because there's too many orange cones. It's just, no, how do I get the resources around me? Did you do this all by yourself or did you have a group of people that... Well, there,
3: there were three of us that decided to do it. We all work full-time. So, you know, it makes it more difficult if you can't talk till 6.30 at night. And, you know, we divided up what we could do. One of one of the women works at the university. And so we would go through her. It's also one big community. So you know the you know, you, you can call people and say, okay, who would I speak to if I really need to figure out what this is? And somebody's name will come up. And for something like what we're doing, this One Billion Rising, Everybody likes it. So you have to understand often what you're doing is something that the whole community wants to see happen. And they'll try their hardest to help you. They have their red tape because that's what they have to do. But they want to help you. So you have to keep asking the questions, well, how could we do it this way? Well, if we if we put our banner up here in the back of the stage, would that work? Can we lift it up a little more? Could we bring our own little sticks to put it on? Can we have people hold it up? And then they start going, Okay, 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 let me think about this, you know. This is really important. We want this. You keep saying it's gonna be it's gonna be in the news, it's gonna be on YouTube. We want the university to look good. You know, you start to and people That's do it. want to help.
2: That's a really good point. I think whatever it is that you're up to, however you feel like you're called to make a difference, it's from that place of treating people like, wow, they really do want to help. And if you encounter resistance, it's meeting with them in terms of what is it about this that matters to them. And once they get connected to it, then they really will want to help you. I'm, I'm sure that that's opened a lot of doors.
1: You know that sound Mm -hmm. you just heard in the background, in addition to me going whoops, was my my attempt to tweet out the comments you know that you were making uh, while we were on air, and to send the link for today's very important One Billion Rising um, in partnership with V Day, and when I. Brought it up on the you know the screen that tweeted out. There was that wonderful music playing in the background. Oh yeah, it, right. and I think that mm-hmm. you know music and the way that we can be creative in supporting one another and women around the world and and causes that um, affect change for all of our life is something that you also exemplify And It's just take you know sheer tenacity and creativity, innovation you know, in partnering with others.
3: Well, and one thing I know I can do is sell passion. If I'm really passionate about it, I'm almost evangelical. So, (laughs) you know, and that's true with anyone. If you're really Mm. passionate about it, people aren't going to be mad at you. You just have to find your way through. And as far as the One Billion Rising, there are risings in every town and city all around the country. So if you were just to go to dot com, I think it is, I don't or it might be dot org, you can you will find a right you just put in your zip code. It will tell you what's going on in your city.
1: Anne, thank you so much for being here with us today. Emily, I'm going to let you close out with the last question.
2: Oh, thank you. This is it's so touching to be in a conversation with somebody who is Vibrant, engaged, passionate, using your skills, talents, abilities, and your wealth to really make a difference in the world. And one of the things that is so important about what we're doing here at Sylvia Global is changing this collective, uh, I would call it the, the meme around wealth and how people with wealth are perceived, like you spoke about earlier in the show, Anne. And, you know, a lot of people listen to this with, like, a cynicism or a a disdain in terms of, you know, the wealthy. All they do is indulge. All they do is look at themselves and not the community. And you're such a, a vibrant light that's saying that is not true, that's not the case. And I'm wondering what you would do, like, if you really could use your way of impacting the world to shift how people think about and look at women of wealth in particular, So that it can be a source of even greater well-being, and people can celebrate that as opposed to having to deal with comments like you got in terms of you know oh you just bought your CPA.
3: How I would shift it, Um, by example. I don't know that we learn. I mean, it's. I would hate to have other younger people go through. You know what I went through when I was younger, and, and even now, where somebody will say, "Wow, you actually you know work." Um, is it a real job? Did somebody give it to you? Yep. yep. I think it's that people want to think that for someone that has money, it even if they earned it themselves completely, they had to have an easier road. You know, they it they had to have opportunities that other people didn't have. I think part of that is human nature. As far as as stepping up, you can step up and be who you are regardless of anyone think what anyone thinks they're always going to think something. And just say, "Well, okay, you know that's where you are and meet people where they are." Um if somebody, I can't tell you there's a magic pill. I can tell you that if you meet more and more people that have wealth, especially women, they're they're often doing everything they can to do something with it Um, when we started when when Women Moving Millions started as a campaign and it's asking women to give a million dollars for the advancement of women and girls that's a lot of money huge commitment and there was 180 million dollars raised very you know over just a few years now it's I think we've had 40 new members since we started as an organization in the middle of last year It makes a difference. People are thinking differently, and they're stepping into a space differently, and now there's an organization with other women that are doing this, that care about the world, and that are dealing with issues around what it's like to be seen as someone that is wealthy. Some people do it anonymously, but a lot more women are stepping up, and they're doing big things. So by example, you're seeing people do good.
2: Yeah, and I, you know what I'm hearing is it's uh, it's less about um, what other people think and more about what it is you think about yourself and your money and what you can do with it. And irregardless of whether somebody thinks, oh, well, you know, it's just your husband's money and you just got his permission or whether whatever they might have as a story, whoever that they is, it's, being an unstoppable woman that can use your humor, can use that, you know, just turn it on a dime and say, you know, it, this, whatever reason I have this, what a gift to be able to really make an impact in the world. What are you doing in the world to make an impact? Tell me about how you're using your skills, talents, and, and abilities, whatever degree you have, to, to move forward what it is you're concerned about. And really allowing yourself to stand tall and, and,
0: and proud
2: about what you can accomplish, especially when you come together with a whole group of women. It's very inspiring.
1: Anne, thank you so much for being here today. Um, Emily, thank you again for joining us. We've been talking with Anne Lovell, a wonderful friend. She's actually a force of nature who, in my, my view, Anne, you just flood the world with um, love and joy. And you do it in such a way that... Um, that not only do you inspire, but you actually do make a difference in the world from Liberia to Tucson and all points in between. Thank you so much. Have fun dancing today. We have a dance date we've got to come up with, too, on our on our calendars. Um, and thank you so much for being here, Ann. Well,
3: thank you for the opportunity.
1: We'll talk soon. You've been listening to SylviaGlobal.com. This broadcast can be heard at SylviaGlobal.com. Uh, Ann Lovell is featured under Business, Leadership, and Philanthropy. And learn more about the work that she is doing. Um, and where would you like them to go? Um, would you like them to go to the Lovell Foundation or to the WMM Women Moving Millions site? Um, either of those are fine. Okay, we also have um, information about how you can support the work that Ann Lovell is doing at Sylvia Global Media on sylviaglobal.com. Have a wonderful day, ladies. Thanks, Emily.
0: Thank Thank you. you. Thanks, Ann. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Sylvia Global with your host, Gail Sylvia. Become a subscriber to Sylvia Global for unique listener opportunities. Follow on Twitter and like them on Facebook. For more information, go to www.SylviaGlobal.com. That's Sylvia, S-Y-L-V-I-A, Global, globa com.